My little children, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have a counselor with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. This is how we will know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. One who says, I know him, and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But God's love has most certainly been perfected in whoever keeps his word. This is how we know that we are in him. He who says he remains in him ought himself also to walk just like he walked. Brothers, I write no new commandments to you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, I write a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light already shines. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. He who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no occasion for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, little children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God remains in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Don't love the world or the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father's love isn't in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life isn't the Father's, but is the world's. The world is passing away with its lusts, but he who does God's will remains forever. Little children, these are the end times. And as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have risen. By this we know that it is the final hour. They went out from us, but they didn't belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have continued with us. But they left, that they may be revealed that none of them belong to us. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son doesn't have the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father also. Therefore, as for you, let that remain in you which you heard from the beginning. If that which you heard from the beginning remains in you, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he promised us, the eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who would lead you astray. 
As for you, the anointing which you received from him remains in you, and you don't need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is no lie, and even as it taught you, you will remain in him. Now, little children, remain in him, that when he appears, we may have boldness and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. All right, good morning, everyone. We are in 1 John chapter 2. That chapter right there was the longest reading, the longest chapter in the book. And in some ways, I, I just got to tell you, going into the series, I knew it would be the most challenging thing. And so as much as I've prayed and tried to prepare today, that's why the study guide is so important, that you daily would get into the scripture yourself and see not only what the Spirit might be saying to me or to Pastor Chuck, but what the Spirit might be saying to you. Uh, an encouragement would be not only reading the translation that we gave you, but maybe turn to other translations. You know, look, look at the New Living Translation. Look at the King James Version of the Bible. And if you don't have all those Bibles at home, you can always go, go online, look at your phone, Google it, and you'll find different versions of the Bible. But look at the different way that translators tried to understand the book. And I think the Spirit likes to use times like that and, and really can transform our thought. Like, why that word? Why is that word important? Now, last week, we opened up 1 John, and we walked through the first chapter. And one of the main themes was that we need to walk in the light, that we need to walk in the light of Christ. It directs how we live. Today we're opening up chapter two, and we're going to have even more fun. Sound good? All right, here we go. Chapter two, verse one, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Look at that opening phrase, my dear children. It has kind of a parental tone to it, a fatherly, a grandfatherly tone to it. Um, you can even sense in it like a gear shift, like a move toward or like a lean into you. This is somebody who cares about you, who wants to nurture you. He's the parent. And we're the child. And so he says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, there's a reality there. That as much as we want to resist sin, we're still going to sin. It's still a part of who we are as broken people. We are both the old Adam and the new Adam at the same time. We're still the broken one. Even as we've been forgiven and redeemed by Christ in this life, we still wrestle and struggle with that sin. Verse 2, he says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. Now, this is funny, because he brings up the word commands, but John hasn't even told us what the command of Jesus is. You look through chapter one, look through chapter two, he never tells us what the command is. So what are we supposed to obey, John? Well, here's the key. John assumes that you've read his gospel. 
John first wrote his gospel, his account of Jesus' life, everything that he witnessed that Jesus did, all the teachings Jesus did, all the miracles that Jesus did. John even gives an accounting of the empty tomb itself because he was there. He was there. And after Jesus had risen from the grave, John was with him and ate with him and listened to him and sat at his feet. So John assumes that you've looked at his gospel. So where does Jesus give this command in his gospel? I'm glad you asked. John 13, this is the first time. Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all, will, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one one another. He repeats it over and over and over again. But that's not the only time Jesus teaches this. He teaches the same in John 15. He says, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, love. In fact, the only way that Jesus uses the word command is when he's talking about love. Jesus' command is always attached to loving people. 1 John says this later on in our chapter. This is verse 9. He says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. But whoever loves his brother lives in the light. Now, this isn't to say that God has gotten rid of all laws or something like that. This isn't to say that the rules no matter don't apply anymore. No, sin is still sin. And we need Jesus to atone for that, and he did on the cross. So sin is still sin. They're still right, and they're still wrong. But what John is saying is right and wrong are servants of the most important command. We need to love. Let's go to verse 4. He says, the man who says, I know him, I know Jesus, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. And this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. How tough is that? So when someone says they have faith in Jesus, but they're always angry or mean-spirited to other people, John is saying they're a liar. They're a liar. They're claiming to have faith but there's no fruit for that faith. Now, there's two words I want you to learn today. The words are orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. My guess is you've heard of one of these words before, but maybe not the other one. Orthodoxy means you have the right beliefs or the right teachings. It means you believe the right things. Uh, orthopraxy means that you have the correct practice or you're correctly living it out. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy. How many of you have heard of the word orthodox before? Okay, good. Uh, how many of you have, have someone, you've heard someone question the orthodoxy of another Christian before? 
They question if they believe the right things. Uh, how many of you, when you heard the word orthodoxy, you also heard the word orthopraxy at the same time? Yes, it, far too often, Christians are really concerned about the beliefs, but we don't point out the bad practice. What John is saying in this passage is you can't divorce the two. The two always go together. Belief without love doesn't work. Now, this is not the same as works righteousness. John is not saying that what you do will get you saved. No, not at all. He's just saying when you're saved, Jesus wants to direct your life as well, because it's by grace that you're saved. But if your faith is all about beliefs, then you have no love, and you're made out to be a liar. Has anybody here been to a church that needed a little bit more love? A church that needed a little bit more acceptance for people? Um, our passage opens up with the words of somebody who is older and wiser. Somebody who walked with Jesus during his young adulthood and now has been leading the church for 50 years since. And John's looking at the church around them. And that's maybe why he's opening up with these words, dear children. He's wanting them to go back to school. He's saying, I've seen it all, guys. I've seen it all. I've been around a while. I've seen splits in the church. I've seen fights in the church. I also heard Jesus' sermons firsthand, and I witnessed the miracles, and I saw the empty tomb. Dear children, here's what matters. Love. The world is going to know what you believe and who you believe in when they can see your love. This is the wise, seasoned words of a pastor that wants the church to be all that Jesus knew it could be. Because the church that's able to love the unlovable, that's a church that makes a difference. We're not just a set of beliefs. We're not just a creed. We take the words of the creed seriously, but then we love people that God loves. We love the people that God loves. And, and, and that's, I hope, why you're at Messiah, that you experience that here. God can do a lot with that kind of love. He can do a lot with us. You can't justify hate in the name of Jesus. It just doesn't work. Verse 7, verse 7, he says, Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing you a new command. It's not a new command, it's a really, really old command, and yet this old command is actually a new command, and it's not new, it's old. It's not old, it's new. Uh, in today's world, we would say what he's saying is, it's retro, <laughs> It's retro. Uh, this command is really old, but it's so vintage, it's cool again. That's what John's saying. Uh, verse 8, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. The love that John saw in Jesus, John sees it in you. The love that he experienced when he was around Jesus, sometimes he experiences in us. The same healing, the same love, the same friendship, the same forgiveness, the same new life. He sees it in us. And the you there is plural. In Texas, we say y'all. It's the best version, version of you plural, trust me. John sees it in y'all. He's speaking to a church. And back then... 
churches were perfect, right? I mean, they would hear this command and they would always do it, right? No, read, read 1 Corinthians. No, they were all a bunch of creeps, just like you weirdos. No, they were sinners just like you and I. They had the same problems in the church that we have in the church. Don't ever talk about the early church as if they had it all together. They didn't. And yet John has this unbelievable faith in them that if they could stick to the word of God and practice what Jesus taught, the world could change and they could be the ones to make a difference. He sees Jesus in them even when they don't see it in themselves. I love Forest Park. It's one of the things I love most about the St. Louis area. That you can go to Forest Park and there's a 10K all around the park and about every mile, there's another museum. And one of my favorite museums is the art museum. And when I go to the art museum, one of the things I notice is that there's so many Picassos. The last time I was there, I counted eight Picassos. That would be like millions and millions of dollars worth of Picassos. Um, and you realize that you're just standing inches away from something that's so amazing, something that has captivated us for so long. And you're so close, you could just break the glass and you could touch it. And then the museum guards would come with fire extinguishers and knock you on the head. But you're that close to just brilliance, just amazing greatness. You're in the presence of greatness. Now imagine after church today, you go and you take an art class and you create your first oil painting and then someone comes along and says, wow, I see a lot of Picasso in that you would think, there's no way, you're crazy. You, you can't see Picasso in somebody who's just learning. But that's what John's saying here. I mean, here we are, we are just children disciples, child disciples. And John is saying, I see the master in you. I see the master artist in you ready to come out. That love of Jesus is there. And if you buried it, let it come out. John sees this in us. First um, John chapter 2, let's go to verse 12. He continues, he continues. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. He's talking to all the generations here. All the generations. And that was what was so important from the video that Ryan and Chuck did together, not the parts where Chuck was knocking Ryan out of the shot, is that they're saying, we want to be a church for all generations, and we need the older generation sometimes to mentor the younger generation, and sometimes we're going to need the younger generation to mentor us. And so when they're calling out and they're saying, we need 20 volunteers to make sure that youth group happens and it's awesome, to make sure that confirmation happens and it's awesome. When they're putting that out to you, they're saying, because this is going to make a generational difference. The way we invest now is the church of the future. It's the church of the future. And so that's why that plea is out there. Again, go to the website, just get some information. But I mean, this is near to my heart. I have four kids at this church, four teenagers. I barely sleep. I'm really sad about that. But it's so important for the future of our church, and it's so important for that next generation. Now, when John, John's talking here, it's kind of like a different gear. 
It's like a different feel. It's like John stops and he throws in a bit of poetry. I'm writing to you, dear children. I'm writing to you, fathers. I'm writing to you, young men. And then he goes right back to the paragraphs. Children's fathers, young men. Children's fathers, young men. When you read this text, you already know what he's talking about. He's telling us, don't lose the gospel. Don't lose the good news of Jesus, that your sins have been forgiven, that Christ has atoned for them. He's taken your sins of the way. And then, see Easter, that he's overcoming sin, death, and the devil. Now, the word there, overcome, is a Greek word, and the Greek word is Nike, like the shoes, Nike, the shoes, that word means to overcome or to have victory. He's saying that you, the church, can have, oh, you can overcome the evil one. You can overcome the devil. Well, doesn't Jesus overcome the devil? Yes. And then he gives that gift to you and he says, you have overcome the evil one. This massive respect he has for the church, massive respect of anyone who's baptized, that the Spirit of God lives in you. This is the last disciple of Jesus. He's been without the other disciples for almost a generation, alone, the last eyewitness. And he's about to leave this church, and he's letting them know, you can be an overcomer. You have it in you. You can do this. Um, this is poetry. It, it's, 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 it's going on, and when John stops, he's just proclaiming it over the people. He's sending this blessing over the people that they would make a difference. There's a movie called Blood Diamond. came out a few years ago, um, and it's about diamond smuggling. There's rebels who end up taking boys from their families, and uh, they turn them into child soldiers. But, but really... The main part of the story is about a father, Solomon, whose son was taken from him, and he's just hunting, and he's searching for his long-lost boy. And the whole time that Solomon is looking, the boy is getting more and more radicalized, more and more corrupted by the blood he sees and by the blood he causes. This boy's heart is just, it's just turning dark. All these messages telling him that he's a bad boy He's violent. He's a killer. And when the father finally finds his son after months, his own son has a gun pointed at his head. And the father tears up. What do you say to your kid at that moment? And he says this, you are not bad. You're my boy. You love soccer. In school. Your mother waits by the fire making plantains with your sister and the new baby. The cows wait for you. I know they made you do bad things, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father who loves you, and you will come home with me, and you will be my son again. He's rewriting his story. He's rewriting the narrative. He's telling them of a different possibility, a different future. I think that's what John's doing in this poetry. As he speaks to all the generations, the young and the old, 
John wants to rewrite our story about who we are. We need to tell people who God says they are, not what the world has told them they are. In Christ, we are strong, and we have known him from the beginning, and we can overcome, John says. If anybody here came today and they only needed to hear that, it's an important word. John believes in you. Not a bad boy. You're his son. Verse 18. To your children, this is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists has come. This is how we know it is the last hour. Hour. Now, this is one of the most interesting sections of Scripture because it brings up a term that causes a little fear in us. Antichrist. Antichrist. There have been famous books written about the Antichrist, and most notably, the book series Left Behind, and those have been turned into bad movies. <laughs> Just the acting and the story. Now, let me make this clear. The teaching in that series is not consistent with biblical teaching. It's not. It's not to say that everything in there is not true or scripture. Some of it is. Some of it is. And I'm not telling you to read them or not to read anything else because the warning against temptation in the books, that's an important warning. It's an important topic. So read whatever you want. Um, However, our church does not endorse the theology that it's teaching. We don't endorse premillennial dispensationalism. Um, we only teach, because the Bible only teaches, that there's only one second coming of Christ. There's not going to be multiple comings of Christ. And the Bible doesn't talk about a rapture that happens in the way that the books do. So one way to wrap our head around a word like Antichrist is to check all the places that it occurs in John's books, and then all the times the word Antichrist occurs in the Bible as a whole. The only problem is, this is the only place where the word antichrist is found in John's epistles. Other terms are used for something similar in Thessalonians and Revelation. It's a different word, though. Probably refers to the same guy, but antichrist is only found here in this book. Verse 22, who is the liar? It is the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. John is warning them that there can be deceivers in the group. Antichrist will deny that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what you have to look out for. Important note, he uses the term antichrist plural as well, with a small a. And it refers to anybody who denies the divinity of Christ. In fact, the devil's job as the ultimate antichrist, the devil's job is to distract us to reduce Christ, to question God's word. If he can take away Jesus' messiahship, then he just becomes a teacher and a rabbi and a nice guy. If you take away his divinity, you take away Jesus' power. The cross can't do what it needs to do. And then I'm going to close with verse 24. He says, See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, If it does, you will remain in the Son and in the Father, and this is what he promised us, even eternal life. If you take away the Christ, John says, 
you take away heaven. You take away eternal life. John wants the gospel to remain in you. Don't forget the thing you learned from the beginning. John doesn't want us to run after things that deny or lie or distract us from Christ. Anything that stands in the way of Jesus is anti-Christ. So this passage is about deceivers and liars in the church. It's about controversy. It's about denying Jesus. It's about the devil. It's about temptation. It's about sin. But John says, not for you. Because when you founded your faith, it was real. You have what you need. Jesus gave us the spirit. Is there anyone here today that needs that reminder to listen to the spirit? The spirit that God put in you at your baptism. That God will be with you. And maybe you need a fresh anointing of the spirit, but the spirit is already with you. I think if everyone in this room took Jesus seriously at his word, the world would change. The power of the cross, the empty tomb, faith that is alive, imagine the potential in this room. John sees it. John sees the potential in this room. Again, imagine you're in John's shoes. Your Savior has ascended to heaven. All your disciple buddies are dead, and the apostle Paul has been gone for a generation. And all your friends were murdered because of your faith. They were all murdered because of their faith in Jesus. And you're wondering, was it worth it? I mean, we have given our lives to this cause. And he's he's looking at this young church, and their faith is sometimes a little juvenile. Was it worth it? The sacrifice, the cross, my friends' lives? You're old, you can't see anymore, you can't walk, you're the last disciple of Jesus, and you're about to leave this earth. And when John leaves this earth, by the way, scripture is complete. The early church decided when the last disciple of Jesus was gone, and he had dictated his last words of the Spirit, the canon was closed, the scripture was closed. So it ends with Revelation. It ends with John's books. What would you say to them before you died? Well, luckily, Jerome, the commentary writer, he tells us. He tells us the legends of the early church of what John preached in his last days. He said that John had to be carried to the front. He barely had the voice to even say anything, and he couldn't see. And this was his sermon. I'm going to tell you the whole sermon. He would say, little children love one another. That's it. Little children love one another. Some of you are like, I wish that was a sermon here every week. (laughs) Little children love one another. And he would do this over and over and over again in the places where he taught. Some of his disciples actually got upset with him. They're like, why do you keep repeating the same things, John? There's more that you need to teach us. Why do you say the same things? And he would reply, because it's all that is needed. Love one another. And that's why John wrote the book of love. That's why John wrote 1 John. 
so that none of you get distracted from the number one thing and all of you realize what our faith is about. We are exploding into this world with the love of God and it will destroy all the evil that distracts us from Jesus. And when we get to heaven, we will see the fruit of that, the faces of people that were impacted by love and it transformed their heart. John just wants you to catch this and to make a difference in the world. Amen.